Chapter Three, Part B, Women of America by John Rose Laros. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It may be broadly said that the characteristics of the Spanish American ladies of Chile, Peru, and the rest of the greater Spanish American states were far from the first and continue until now very like those of the mexican women even physically there is a great resemblance in the races as indeed there should be considering the identity of parent stock their complexions were and are rarely good but their hair and eyes are generally fine and their figures excellent while small feet form a national physical trait of which they like their mexican sisters are exceedingly proud there has never been any marked racial individuality among the women of south america and what little there once was has entirely disappeared even early in the past century a traveller in noting the influx of european manners said this spirit of imitation is natural and praiseworthy but it produces a cloying sameness it is a leveller destructive alike of national and personal individuality and the traveller tired of seeing continually reproduced the manners customs dress and even ideas with which he has always been familiar will tarry with pleasure in those spots presenting the freshness of originality such spots exist only where a continual jostling of the exterior world has not abraded the salient angles of the national character it may be added that such spots have become increasingly difficult to find and that the romance of south america has entirely disappeared before the march of progress yet few countries have known more of romance and this in regard to her women though the chronicle is scanty and must be pieced together from scraps of information. Perhaps the most romantic era of South American women was that of the buccaneers. It was a brief time and one that held much of peril to womanly honor and virtue, but it also held delightful possibilities for the daughters of Spain in their new home. These ladies, even some of noble birth, looked not unkindly upon the heretecos who came with fire and sword to gain wealth in the shape of booty and ransom do we not read in quaint old chronicle of that paladin of a filibuster revenant de Luzon, who in sixteen eighty five put panama to ransom and then occupied the town of caaquila de Luzon was a freebooter which is a polite way of writing pirate and he was a frenchman in days when gallic morals were not on the highest of planes even when judged by the usual standard of their country but the gentlemanly filibuster was frankly shocked at the state of affairs existing in caaquila where he found the most beautiful and wanton women he had ever encountered the monks and priests with which the town swarmed took the lead in illicit intercourse with the entirely willing ladies and there were few children who had the faintest idea 
concerning the identity of their paternal parents. The people of this place had been told frightful stories about the pirates, and when de Luzon captured a pretty young woman, the maid to the wife of the governor, she begged him with tear-strewn cheeks, Signor, por le mor, di Dios, no me coma. Signor, for the love of God, do not eat me. It took but a short time, however, for the jovial buccaneers to prove to the ladies that they were not greatly to be feared by the fair sex unless the latter proved unkind, and when the pirates retired to the island of Puna with their spoils, they were accompanied by many of the ladies of Keakila, who went with them nominally as prisoners awaiting ransom, but really as willing mistresses. There the freebooters spent many glorious weeks in high revelry with music, wine, dancing, and all other amusements most dear to the pirate heart. The Spanish ladies entering most heartily into the spirit of the occasion. In the attack on the town, de Luzon killed the Spanish treasurer, and the latter's disconsolate widow fell to the lot of the slayer of her husband. In a few days she developed for the gallant Frenchman a passion that was absolutely embarrassing, insisting that he should remain with her after the rest of the band had departed, should marry her, and should live with her at Keakila. She actually went so far as to obtain from the governor a signed pardon for de Luzon for offences committed against Spanish possessions, so that he could be assured that he might safely remain. De Luzon, however, though he tells us that he was not a little perplexed herewith, could not resolve to settle down and abandon the career of a pirate for that of a private citizen. He may also have had doubts as to the intention of the governor of keeping his fair promises when once he had the famous freebooter in his power. So he further tells us, Thus I rejected her proposals, but so as to assure her I should retain, even long as I lived, a lively remembrance of her affections and good inclinations toward me. Thus he extricated himself from his quandary with all the finesse and gallantry of his nation, and went his way rejoicing in his liberty. We are not told of the future fate of the lady, of whose name we are indeed kept in ignorance, but it is probable that some Spaniard consoled her for the loss of her lover as readily as had that lover for the loss of her husband. De Luzon's experience with the women of Central America which for convenience is here considered as part of the southern continent, was so typical that it has been treated at greater length than it may have deserved. Indeed, there seems to be much light thrown on the impetuous, passionate nature of the Spanish-American woman by her bearing toward the pirates, who ravaged the shores of her country, yet to whom she frequently gave her heart and virtue. Of course, this bearing was not invariable. Morgan, a greater pirate, but not so gallant a gentleman as de Luzon, when he captured Panama against fearful odds, 
found within its walls a Spanish lady with whom he fell violently in love, but who resolutely refused to listen to his proposals. Finding flattery, pleading, and bribery in vain, he showed the true brutality of his nature by throwing her into a foul dungeon and keeping her there half-starved, until even his rough comrades, who delighted in slaughter and made the name of England a stench in the nostrils of the civilized world by their treatment of the Spaniards, remonstrated, and the brutal buccaneer was compelled by motives of policy to release his captive from her cell. She was finally ransomed and allowed to return to the ruins of her home, and here we lose sight of her, but we can remember her as one who is worthy of the best traditions of the Spanish ladies, and whose memory may redeem the repute of her lighter countrywomen from their shame. It must not be thought, from what has been said, as to the morality of Spanish-American women in certain periods and places, that it is designed to charge the race in general with immorality. That were to utter a slander which would be as baseless as it would be inexcusable. It is unfortunately true that in the history of any country or race, it is the women most famous for immorality and wickedness, who stand out most prominently. Those who were merely good were tolerably sure to be forgotten as unnoteworthy. So it was with South America. We have the word of a keen observer that any impartial person who shall reside long enough among South Americans to become acquainted with their domestic manners will declare that conjugal and paternal affection, filial piety, beneficence, generosity, good nature, and hospitality are the inmates of almost every house. I have no doubt, too, that these virtues will continue here until civilization and refinement shall drive them from their abode in the new world to make room for etiquette, formality, becoming pride, prudery, and hypocrisy from the old. Then the children of the first families in Lima, whom I have often seen rise from the table and carry a plateful of food to a poor protégé beggar, seated in the patio or under the corridor, wait and chat with the little wretch until he had finished and returned to the table. We'll look upon such objects with disdain, because Mama has subscribed a competent sum to a charitable institution and made that sum known to the world through the medium of the newspapers. I cannot avoid fearing that this modern improvement will supersede their own pure but almost antiquated customs. This, written about 1825, is a severe arraignment of the blessings of our civilization, but it is also a sincere compliment to the character of South American women, and so it is worth quoting. Fond of pleasures, the South American senorita and even senora has always been, but such fondness, however indicative of volatility of temperament and lack of depth of nature, is not incompatible with many of the virtues which are held in high esteem among women. 
another thing worthy of note in the words of our sarcastic critic is the reference to the disappearance even at that date of the more characteristic customs of south american ladies a later visitor to chile and peru tells us that the young senoritas often denied that they practiced smoking whereas we know from other travellers that but a short time prior to that period it was considered the height of courtesy for the south american lady to transfer to the lips of her male companion the cigarette moist from her own eating sweetmeats from the same plate was also common at one time in fact down to the beginning of the last century among south american ladies and gentlemen they even sucked mate the native tea from a single tube these characteristic customs have long since passed away and now the spanish-american lady sedulously apes her european contemporaries in tastes dress and customs she has retained but little of the individuality which once marked her national place among her sex yet in one respect she is still unique and it is to be hoped will long remain so that singularity is her influence and part in politics all of us know the constant political cataclysms that occur in south america it is said that a spanish-american lady who not long ago visited new york looked with some surprise upon the arrogance of one of the grand dames of the city and inquired the reason why my dear replied her interlocutor she is the daughter of the revolution oh ca replied the charming south american with a shrug is that all for me i am the daughter of at least six the anecdote may be apocryphal but it is none the less pointed and the constant revolutions of the south american states have become fair matter for jest in these turbulent ebullitions of racial spirit rather than national liberty the fair senoritas and senoras have had a most prominent part not only have they incited and encouraged the men who bore the brunt of the actual combat but if those who know most the inner histories of these affairs of state are to be believed the women have been the most efficient as well as the most ardent plotters in fact it may be said that of late years save for the latter half of the past century politics has become with south american women as much a fashion as literature was in france at the time of the great salons she who had never plotted was at one time yet not entirely passed away beyond the social pale while she who was fortunate enough to include among the visitors to her political salon some especially virulent revolutionist was regarded with as much envy as in circles of other nationality is the exhibitor of some great literary lion of particularly loud roar we often hear the expression the game of politics but certainly it has never been so well applied as to the somewhat dangerous but entirely conventional pursuits 
of the female plotters and revolutionists of South America. That these women, of whom none has bequeathed to posterity a name worthy of record, have been of some influence in regulating the course of South American events, it is impossible to deny. But their methods have not, as a rule, been such as to call forth high eulogism of feminine politics. They have been, for the most part, on a plane with the female nihilists of Russia, save that the latter are in deadly earnest, while the South American ladies play at politics as their northern sisters at golf, with intent to win, indeed, but after all merely as a diversion. This aspect of the woman of South America, however, is the only one of characteristic form she has retained after her determined subduing of national individuality to European commonplaceness. The lady of Brazil, Peru, Chile, or the lesser South American states is not characteristic in appearance, in custom, or in thought. She stands simply as a modification of Latin civilization under variant conditions, and is hardly to be distinguished from her European sisters of similar stock. There is, of course, some individuality left among the lower class of women, but even this is fast disappearing before the inroads of the more insistent culture. As with the Mexican, so with the South American woman, she has ceased to possess racial uniqueness, and so has ceased to be nationally interesting, however she may charm as an individual. It is therefore rather in the individual than in the typical aspect that there may be presented to the notice of the reader the names of some of the more noted women of South American culture in later years. While it is true that during the last half of the 19th century, particularly in Chile and Argentine Republic, the feminine status underwent a marked change, coming into closer touch with the standards of civilization in the more advanced civilizations. The woman of prominence, in anything save politics, is still the notable exception in South America. The most marked advance in this respect is to be found in Chile, where, in 1879, the university and its colleges were, by special statute, opened to women students, and where, in 1903, the medical school contained 38 women, not a few of whom were taking postgraduate courses after having passed through the regular curriculum. The government of Chile actually sent as a special student to Austria and Germany a woman, Ernestina Perez, who has since taken high rank as a physician. The advance in the status of women in Chile was doubtless largely due to the influence of Mercedes Marin de Solar, whose writings first extorted from Spanish masculinity a reluctant confession that a woman might achieve deserved fame in paths hereto thought to be sacred to the feet of men. Born in 1804, when among her countrymen, women were considered mere child-bearers, 
she devoted her life to proving that her sex possessed the qualities requisite for high attainment in literary matters as well as in graver concerns of life and she won ample success even with the scant opportunities for obtaining an education which were then stingily meted out to women signora solar managed to develop her natural culture and while still a young woman she became an ardent public advocate for the higher education of her sex she did not live to see her efforts crowned with full fruition but they were effectual at last it is however chiefly for her literary accomplishments that she will live in memory her ode on the death of don diego portales remains a standard and her ode to washington inspired by the interest taken by its author in the american civil war which was then raging shows breadth of thought and fine philosophical powers while it is of a special interest to us because of its subject and aim signora solar was of the earlier age of chilean feminine culture and was greatly hampered by the conditions existing in her period of largest activities but a later writer rosario orego irribe has carried on the work so admirably begun and has added to its range and full effect for years signora orego de Uribe was at the head of a large journal the revista de valparaiso and thus found a suitable medium for the expression of her theories moreover as a novelist she has attained high rank and she has written poetry which is above the average her influence has been steadily for the emancipation and advancement of her sex and her work is not yet finished though she has seen the cause she embraced with such enthusiasm prosper even beyond the highest hopes of its first advocates among the notable women of chile may also be mentioned the name of juana ross de edwards as the name implies she is of anglo-saxon descent and has strengthened the blood by marriage she is noted as a philanthropist giving largely and wisely to worthy objects and she is so admittedly a power in the land that she was one of the first to suffer banishment when balmaceda came into power in eighteen ninety one the powerful dictator feared the influence of signora edwards more than the plots of the most virulent of his masculine foes the argentine republic has also some great names to boast among its women juana manso noronha was a potent influence in the cause of education she early came under the influence of sarmiento the greatest of south american educators and she was actually appointed by the government of argentina to edit the annala de la educacion Camun, a paper in the interests of public education founded by sarmiento himself both in theory and practice for she conducted a large school at one time she proved herself a woman of profound thought and eager energy 
in the subjects to which she devoted her life, and Argentina owes her no small debt for its advance in culture. Her work since her death in 1890 has been to some extent carried on by Eduarda Mancilla de Garcia, though Signora Garcia is known rather as a writer than an educator. Her novels have won deservedly high repute, and one of them found tribute from so absolutely an authority as Victor Hugo. Another great influence in the cause of feminine culture was Juana M. Corita, an Argentine, but her activities were mainly exerted in Peru. This latter country has hardly kept a pace of her South American sisters in the cause of feminine emancipation and culture. Yet even Peru has some names of which she may boast, as those of Mercedes Cabello Carbonaro, a writer on philosophical and social questions, and Clorinda Mato de Turner, a novelist whose work is rather of the ultra-realistic school. Both women are enthusiastic and influential, nor do they stand entirely alone in the circles of Lima. But in that old city, the advance in the matter of feminine culture has been very slow. The doors of the University of San Marcos in Lima are still shut to women students, and there are no signs that there will soon be encouragement to women to take their modern place among the men in the old land of the Incas. What has been stated of South American women applies in general to the women of Brazil. Nevertheless, this country furnishes historic incidents that claim place in an account of the women of South America. Searching the early chronicles, we find a few records of Indian women who have gained prominence and whose descendants have taken high rank in their country. We learn of the romantic marriage of the daughter of the chief, Tabarica, to the Portuguese adventurer, Juau Romalu, in the first quarter of the 16th century, from which union sprang the Mamelucos, the sturdy, independent people who brought about the colonization of the state of San Paulo. But a still more interesting record is the story of a Brazilian Pocahontas, which, if not acceptable in its entirety, at least enjoys the credit of a deep-rooted tradition. It is told that Diogo Alvarez Corriga was shipwrecked near Bahia in 1510, and falling into the hands of the Tupinamba Indians, was doomed to furnish a cannibal feast. At the moment when his life was about to be taken, Paraguasu, the daughter of the chief, interposed and secured the victim's release. However much is fiction, however much is truth in this part of the story, it is certain that Diogo married the Indian maiden and that she became the mother of children whose descendants hold influential rank in Brazil to this day. Paraguasu was moreover an enlightened woman and a benefactress, and is greatly honored by Brazilians. In the chapel of La Graça, in the cathedral at Bahia, the following epitaph perpetuates her memory. 
tomb of Dona Caterina Alvarez Paraguaso, lady that was of Capitania of Bahia, which she and her husband Diogo Alvarez Correa gave to the king of Portugal, having built this chapel of Nossa Senhora de Graça, which she gave with the ground annexed to the patriarch Sao Bento in the year 1582. To the influence of Paraguaso is to be attributed much of the power gained by her husband over the Indians, which enabled him to promote the early colonization of Bahia. Paraguaso may therefore be regarded as one of the great pioneers in the civilization of South America. In any account of the women of Brazil, the story of the Amazons should find place. The early explorers of the Amazon country have generally accepted, or at any rate given prominence to, the Indian narrative of these female warriors. They are said to have formed a powerful body and to have ruled over a large territory and proved invincible in battle. In appearance tall, robust, and fair, they wore their long hair twisted about their heads. Their costume was simply a dress of animal skin, which they tucked about their loins. Their weapons were bows and arrows. Humboldt relates the Indian account that these warrior women, once a year admitted to their company for a limited time, the men of the neighboring tribe, who at the expiration of their period of leave were sent away with presents. All the male children born to these women were killed in infancy, the female children being brought up by their mothers. The origin of this tribe of female warriors is clouded with mystery. One explanation is that they abandoned the men of their tribe and sought to establish a settlement in the region of the Jamunda River, but being followed by their disconsolate husbands and despairing lovers, pity caused them to relent to the extent of making a pact with the discarded ones to admit them to their society and sufferance once a year. We have no sufficient data concerning the organization of government of the tribe or other information which would admit of treating this subject otherwise than as a curious historic phase of Brazilian womanhood. Through the periods of settlement and the Portuguese rule, we pass without notice of any woman of such prominence as to secure noteworthy mention. Yet woman's influence must have been exerted and felt along each step of the path toward independence. They buttressed with their ambition and patriotism the enlarging spirit of nationality. So, in the crisis that followed, the Declaration of Independence in 1822, we need not be surprised to find a woman mentioned for her heroism and patriotism. A Bahia girl, Maria de Jesus Medeiros, touched by her father's lament that he had no son to fight in his country's cause, and fired to action, disguised herself as a soldier, and fought through the war. Her signal service, however, was on the occasion of the attempted landing of a powerful force of Lusitanians at the mouth of the Paraguasu River. Here Maria stood to resist the invader at the head of a troop of Bai. Amazons, 
she charged the oncoming soldiers, and in spite of superior numbers, discipline and equipment, her valor and that of her companions prevailed, and the discomfited Portuguese were driven back ingloriously. In the absence of more specific information, we may, moreover, gather that women's influence was of the notable movement in Brazil at the period of the independence, for which we find that in 1821, Viscount de Pedro Branca, a deputy from Bahia to the Cortes in Lisbon, a prominent leader of the liberals, and a man of worldwide fame, advocated that the political liberty should be granted to Portuguese women, and the fact that the Cortes ignored his plea does not lessen the force of the presumption that women in Brazil had acquired pronounced influence in politics at this time. Among the women of the period of the empire, the crown princess Isabel stands most prominent, and exception will hardly be taken to her inclusion in an account of Brazilian women. On her shoulders, as regent, devolved the government at intervals for many years. Remarkable for firmness of character, she was moreover imbued with lofty principles. The conspicuous act of her regency was the emancipation of the slaves, the decree for which she signed on July 10, 1888. In this act, her courage and devotion were put to the severest test, yet realizing fully that her signing the decree would perhaps involve the overthrow of the empire and certainly lose her much popularity, or at any rate, much influential support, she did not falter, nor did she content herself with the mere concurrence in the legislative course, but issued a declaration in which she exalted the act and glorified the emancipation. Her strength of character and her fidelity to her trust rose above all personal or party considerations. Soon followed, in fact, the quiet revolution of a few hours, and the empire had vanished. A great republic was installed, and in this crisis Isabel again stood dignified and lofty, in her farewell manifesto to the Brazilian people, proving her patriotism and voicing her womanly sentiment and unfeigned sorrow. The political, social, and economic changes effected by emancipation in Brazil were not attended with violent disturbance, as was the case in the United States. Generally, the act was favorably received, although great hardship was caused to many individual slave owners. So far as this measure has affected Brazilian women, the result may safely be assumed as making for their uplifting. Woman has been stimulated to greater activity, intellectual, domestic, and social. Of the emancipated race, it can hardly be doubted that they are in better state. In the large cities where the Negroes constitute a large proportion of the population, as in Bahá'í, their condition betokens relative material prosperity and physical content. A most characteristic picture is presented on a holiday by a Baha'i, a negress, when the occasion permits of the racial indulgence of lavish display. 
her deckings are dazzling in color and bewildering in variety dress ornaments and air of self-satisfaction offer a moving picture that cannot well be forgotten in the many industries of brazil where manual labor still holds relatively great preponderance over mechanical the negroes furnish a very considerable part of the labor as also in the work of the great haciendas what may almost be termed a general industry is the preparation of manioc or manjoca the cultivation of which was considered of such importance in colonial days as to be obligatory it is an article of almost universal use in brazil and the free negroes of to-day are no less skilful in cultivating and preparing it than were their forebears in slavery days since the inauguration of the republic of brazil there are but few women of whom notable mention has been made it has been a period of transition and adjustment in which woman's activities though constantly exercised in patriotic endeavor and toward social progress have not found the record that they merit nevertheless we get a glimpse of the character of the latter womanhood of brazil in the words of senora campo salas the wife of a recent president addressed to her husband on the occasion of a political revolution in the state of sao paulo you must forget that to-day you have a wife and children and remember only your duty to your country the social and domestic life of woman in brazil is still largely influenced by european customs the senorita's chaperone is still regarded as a conventional desideratum and courtship if not quite as much a long-distance communication as among the puritans of new england when the courting stick was in vogue is yet largely regulated according to the customs of the mother country and generally involves the presence of the family as in the political so in the social world however the spirit of the new world has entered and the brazilian woman is very gradually throwing off restraints which european convention has put upon her and is participating more generally and prominently in intellectual social and political affairs in social progress and amelioration in educational and charitable activities she is taking place as an accepted leader in the elementary schools for the girls the instruction is entrusted exclusively to women who on the other hand are also found in charge of those for boys there are special institutions provided for the education of girls in all womanly arts and in addition to this the state provides them with a dot for the purchase of a wedding trousseau and a suitable housekeeping equipment in art and literature the names of brazilian women have gained honor among painters senoras de andrade and bertha worms and among writers senoras de bivar de almeida and de azerto senora de almeida has established and edited a paper devoted to the feminista movement in brazil 
while the list of notable and noted South American women is far from exhausted by these names, enough has been said to show that below the equator as well as above it there has been advance and change. Yet it must be confessed that in South America the march of feminine progress has thus far been very slow and is still confined, as already said, to the individuals, rather than manifested in national or racial movement. It may yet broaden into this, but the omens are hardly propitious. The restraining and clogging influence is rather of racial than masculine nature. It is less that the men look upon the advanced woman as lusus naturae, though this is also broadly true, than that the women are not racially capable of working out their own salvation in this line. Thus far, the movement has been almost entirely productive of leaders only. There is no rank and file to give it strength and continuity. There is ardent enthusiasm, but it is confined within narrow limits. Yet he would be a rash prophet who should foretell that these circumstances will continue to prevail, and it may well be that the signs may develop into conditions and South America prove a close follower, if not a pioneer, in the march of feminine advancement in culture. End of chapter 3, part B.